There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself felt also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we can come before your throne. For Father, you are the almighty God, the all-powerful God, the all-wise God. You are our creator. Yet, Father, you are a personal God. You tell us, for God so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son. And Father, we're thankful this morning and rejoice in that great gift that was given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who became a man in order to become our Savior, Father, to die in our place for our sins, was buried and rose again, Father, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And thank you, Father, that in him we have life, the forgiveness of sins, and the assurance of eternity. And Father, we're thankful for that today, and we worship and praise you for that great love that you have for us, and a love that is undeserving, a gift that is given in grace, and Father, good plans that you have for us for all eternity. Father, we rejoice in you this morning. And Father, we pray as we turn our attention to your word that you would direct our hearts to understand the things you've written to us. That, we, that our faith might be based not on man's opinion or religious opinion, but on thus saith the Lord. So give us understanding in your word today. May our hearts be ready to hear and be taught by your spirit that we might see wonderful things from your word, that we might observe the wonder and beauty of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ and that you might not only elicit from us worship, but love and service. And Father, make us like Christ today. Accomplish your work in our hearts. And Father, we pray for those who aren't with us today, wherever they are, that you would watch over each one, Father. We trust you will, you will find their, they will find their strength in you and that they will be walking with you each and today as well. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that are worshiping today, that are studying your word today, Father. Give them understanding and may your church, Father, desire to honor your word by taking heed to your word, by basing all life and practice on your word. And Father, we pray especially for those who are, who are serving and, and worshiping and learning in, in hostile areas, in areas of persecution around the world, Father, you protect and watch over them. And Father, we pray for our missionaries. Father, I think especially the ones that we support, Father, but all those who are giving out your word and truth, Father, may it be used in the lives of those who hear to bring them the knowledge of, of the Savior of your love and of your salvation. And so, Father, we pray today that here in our service that you would be uplifted and glorified, that we would see you more clearly, that we would understand your word as your spirit teaches us this morning, and it's for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 4 as we study the book of Philippians together verse by verse. We've come to chapter 4, and last time we began this section in chapter 4 in, in verse 2 and looking at this passage in context, because in context this is a passage 
that speaks about conflict. We saw in verse 2 that there was a couple of gals in the church at Philippi that weren't seeing eye to eye. They weren't getting along, and apparently that conflict had become public and maybe spread to the church. Maybe there had been team building going on, and so Paul addresses the importance of unity in, in encouraging these ladies to get along and of others to help them to find unity in Christ. And we looked at this passage in light of that conflict. And we saw that there, there are principles and dynamics in this passage that, that help the believer deal with conflict, if not prevent conflict in their lives. But in doing so, we, saw, we also saw some teachings, some dynamics, some principles that reach beyond this context. They not only apply to this context of restoring unity, but they also are principles that, that apply to all areas of life. They reach beyond this passage into all facets of the Christian life, some wonderful teachings. So we want to go back today and go over this passage again in light of these principles and maybe spend a little more time in these principles that, that God sets before us that would help us in our lives. And what we really see here are three aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. You know, we know the fruit of the Spirit is mentioned in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. That fruit that the Spirit of God produces in God's children that, that, that exhibits Christ-likeness. And the first three of those are love, joy, and peace. And we see those in this passage, in reality. We see joy in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. In verse 5, we see an expression of love, gentleness, or graciousness, which is an aspect of the love of Christ. And then we see peace, mentioned in verses 6 and 7. The peace of God that passes understanding, love, joy, and peace which tells us not only that these are a work of the Spirit in our lives, but these are a reflection of the beauty of Christ. And that's what we have in this passage. We have the beauty of Christ that is, that is not only on display, but that is intended to be lived out in the lives of God's children. That's what this is. This is about the beauty of Christ that God intends for us. And really what God sets before us, for us in this passage are tremendous privileges. Privilege of the children of God, those who know Christ as their Savior, who are right related to Jesus Christ, we have the privilege of living Christ-like lives and enjoying these dynamics in our lives, these things that really the whole world are seeking for, love, joy, peace. It's what the world is pursuing in various ways and means, yet we find them here in a right relationship with God as we walk with him. Because back in Galatians 5, where the fruit of the Spirit is mentioned, a previous verse, verse 16, says, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So walk in the Spirit. That means a walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit who leads us to live God's word is a prerequisite to producing the fruit of the Spirit. And thus we have here not only the power of God, but the person of God on display in this passage. So the first one we deal with in verse 4 then is joy. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Now joy is something that is often an el elusive and fleeting in our lives, isn't it? It seems short-lived. In our, in, in our experience, and often infrequent. And there may be reasons for that. One may be because of sin. Because we know sin distances us, us from God, does it not? And what we look for often in fulfilling our lust is act to find pleasure and joy actually destroys the joy God intends for us. And so that's something we must be willing to deal with in our lives. Another thing that robs us of our joy is trials, troubles, difficulties, the storms of life often rob us of our joy. Or sometimes we think joy is found in the pursuit of various pleasures. And we find out that they do, do not satisfy. They're not the kind of joy God gives. 
Isn't that what Solomon found out? The book of Ecclesiastes is all about the vanity of finding fulfillment in this world, in this life now. Verse 14 of chapter 1, Solomon says this, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. It's empty. And he identifies in chapter 2, verse 1, a specific when he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with myrrh, therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. Living for pleasure, chapter, in verse 11 of the same chapter, he says, then I looked at all the works that my hands had done and on the labor which I had toiled. And indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. And see, what Solomon comes to in this book is a conclusion that though God has given us rich, richly all things to enjoy, pleasures, labor, there are things in life that, that God's given us to enjoy, but not without him, not at the expense of a relationship with him. And that's the problem in the world. And Solomon is saying, when I simply just pursued these things apart from a relationship with God, I'm, I was out of balance, out of perspective, and it did not satisfy because those things would not satisfy unless we see them in the context or enjoy them in the context of a walk with God as from his hand and enjoy, enjoy them for his glory. And that's why joy is often fleeting in our lives. So how can we experience this always of, of chapter 4, verse 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice always. It's an always thing. It's not, it doesn't need to be fleeting and infrequent. It can be a constant, the Bible says. And it says that because the key in this verse is the simplicity of it. It's rejoice in the Lord. It's the focus of our joy and the source of our joy. That's the simplicity of it. We rejoice in the Lord because he is the focus of our lives. So how, what does that look like to rejoice in the Lord? Well, we know, first of all, it begins with salvation, doesn't it? It begins with the, uh, with the realization that when, when the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that God so loved me. It means he loved me. He loved you. He loved the world. He loved each one of us. We can put our name in that blank and recognize that God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son because we were lost in sin. Because sin separated us from God, because we're born into this world, alienated from the life of God, the Bible tells us that we needed the forgiveness of sins and rescue from hell. You see, mankind is not born on the path to heaven, and it's up to him to stay on that path, and if he blows it, he's going to go to hell. That's not what the Bible teaches. That might be what man's ideas are, religious ideas are, but the Bible teaches us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God that the wicked go estranged from the womb as soon as they be born, speaking lies. There's none righteous, no, not one. We're born separated from God, and we need rescue. We need help, and that's what God provided in Jesus Christ. God sent his son to be that satisfactory payment for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus took our place, paid for our sins on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And so, so rejoicing begins with that understanding that God loves me and he's proven that love on the cross. He came to rescue me, to save me, to deliver me and I can have that by faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. For by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. Salvation is a gift 
And who doesn't like a free gift? We all like free. You know, you drive down the road, you see something on the side of the road that says free. It doesn't matter how junky it looks. You slam on the brakes and think, hmm, can I find a reason to pick that up? It's free. Free is good. Well, free is really good when it involves eternity, when it involves forgiveness, when it involves being restored to right relationship with our Creator. Salvation is a free gift given in grace. And that's what we rejoice in. That's the, be that's the beginning point, the starting point of rejoicing in the Lord. Because he, he paid it all. He paid that terrible price of experiencing our hell on the cross so that we don't have to go there. Salvation begins there, doesn't it? Rejo excuse me, rejoicing be begins with salvation, doesn't it? Rejoicing also maybe involves worship, doesn't it? It involves the recognition and adoration of the person of God. We rejoice in who he is. We really realize what an, what an awesome God he is. We rejoice that he is personal to me. Rejoicing in the Lord. If we're going to rejoice in the Lord always, it involves a focus, doesn't it? It definitely involves a focus on the Lord in the midst of our troubles and all those things that disrupt our joy. Coupled with worship, it allows us to see God's sovereign power and care for his children and protection in our lives. So when we rejoice in the Lord, it brings our focus off our problems and our difficulties and all those things that interrupt joy and puts them on the God who can take care of us in spite of those things. The God who's sovereign over those things. The God who has allowed those things in our lives for his glory. And so it involves a focus. To rejoice in the Lord always includes an always focus, you might say, on him. And it obviously requires faith. Because, we quite, because for one thing, the just shall live by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. But faith, faith is, the, is the hand that trusts God to keep his promises in spite of the joy killers in our lives. Because he's made us promises of his presence, I will be with you always, of his comfort, of his strength, of his wisdom, of his protection and preservation, and so on. And faith trusts him. Our faith isn't rattled because we know who our God is. We worship him and recognize his awesomeness and coupled with faith. And when we focus on that and we express faith in that, and, we, and our faith need, need not be rattled. Instead, we can have joy as we remember who he is and we focus on the promise he is, has given us. And therefore, rejoicing in the Lord is really a preoccupation, isn't it? It's a preoccupation with him every moment of the day. It's a relationship that is enjoyed moment by moment. And rather than looking to this life for joy, we find joy in our relationship with him. That's the kind of joy this is talking about. This is not talking about happiness from a few happenings in our lives. This is talking about a stability of joy that we find in a constant, ongoing, dependent relationship of faith in him. And therefore, it's expressed by those familiar, familiar declarations that I like to mention often, where we saw earlier in this book in Philippians 1.21, where Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's a preoccupation. That's an occupation with Jesus Christ, and for me to live is Christ. Or Colossians 3, 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. John 15, abide in me and I in you. Galatians 2, 20, not I but Christ lives in me. It's our preoccupation in life as we filter all of life and enjoy all of life in light of our relationship with him. So thus we rejoice in him. I mean, that, of course we don't rejoice in, in, in the storms of life. Instead we rejoice in him always. You know, we don't always like those absolutes the Bible throws at us. Always. That's what, God said. That's what God's calling us. Rejoice in him always. And there are sure times in our lives we don't feel like rejoicing. 
But that's because we put ourselves under our circumstances. But when we put ourselves under the care of our divine protector and keeper, we can rejoice in him. And this always indicates that the joy is really a stability of mind. I can't think of a better way to describe the joy of the Lord. Because it's not, you know, the, the, the amusement ride thrills that we get. You know, I went by the other day, Valley Fair over there in the Twin Cities, and that roller coaster is really high and steep. Some people get thrills from that. I would probably get a heart attack. <coughs> For one thing, I'm a big guy, and I look at that little rails those tracks roll on. You know, but we think sometimes the Christian life is supposed to be mountaintop experiences. The Christian life is not lived on a mountaintop. Besides, if you've been on a mountaintop, it gets windy up there, cold, and the sun will get to you. Life's not meant to be lived on a mountaintop. That's often what we live for, those mountaintop experiences. But neither is life to be lived in the depths and darkness of the valley of despair. It's to be lived in the stability of the joy of the Lord. That's where life is to be lived. It's a stability that he brings to our life, a constant that we can have always because we're not occupied with the mountaintop or with the valley because doing so would be, uh, would be to be occupied with my experience and my pleasure. Instead, we are focused on our God, his person, his promises, his will, trusting him as we walk in him and with him. We must also notice here that rejoice in the Lord always is an imperative. Therefore, it's a choice we must make. It's a choice we make in how we're going to view life, how we're going to live life. Are we going to be live, view life through the lens of an almighty God who is caring for me through myriad promises administered in love, or are we going to view life through our circumstances? Are we going to rejoice in the Lord? It's a choice we make. And those in that crossroad of those choices are made in the daily afflictions of life, aren't they? And we can rejoice in the Lord. So we have to ask ourselves where we want to live. In the realm of vanity and vex vexation, or grasping for the wind, as Solomon put it, the pursuit of selfish pleasures and fulfillment, or is Jesus our life? We find our joy in our walk in him. Now we can have that joy, rejoice in the Lord, because it is his joy, we're told in John 15, aren't we? I wanted to point that out. John 15, 11, Jesus said this to his disciples, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy, and that your joy may be full. See, God wants us to have fullness of joy. Now we think that's because we get everything on our wish list that we can have fullness of joy. That's not how it comes. That's what Solomon's saying. That was grasping for the wind. Fullness of joy comes from Jesus' joy, my joy, he says. The joy of relationship that he shares with us because we trust in him. That's why we can have it always. It's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on our circumstances. It's dependent on him. We just have to choose whether or not we're going to enjoy it as we enjoy him. The next thing we come to in this passage in verse 5 is this express, expression of the love of Christ. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Some versions translate that graciousness. Of, some, some say grace of spirit. And that's what's in view here. Now, we, we had a specific application in the realm of, of conflict last week. But this is something that God wants us to demonstrate all the time. Because we live in a world that is harsh and cruel, don't we? The news is full of stories of, of intolerance, hate, and cruelty. We see people that are so blinded by their agendas that they express the venom of hate towards anybody that disagrees with them or gets in their way. 
We also see accounts of abuse of children and spouses, of the innocent and the vulnerable. Even in the workplace, you see, you know, there's people walking all over each other to get to the top type of mentality. Cruelty everywhere you look in life. And on and on we could go. So what's the problem? What's the answer? Well, we know the problem, according to the Bible, is that in the flesh, we are naturally selfish. That's man in the raw. And we are only interested in number one. So the answer, then, is Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.1 says this. Paul says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's how he describes the Creator. Meek and gentle. A lot of people have a view of God that he's just a big God with a big stick that wants to get you. And yet, when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. See, God wants to demonstrate his love for us. Yes, God is a just God. He, ha- he, he requires a penalty for sin, so much so that his son came to satisfy that justice and die for your sins and mine on a cross. He's also a God of love, of grace. And when he operated on earth, even though he was the creator, he functioned in, the, in this dynamic of meekness and gentleness, which Paul here was replicating in his life and ministry. Matthew 11, 20 and 29, those familiar verses says, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Amazing, the creator of the universe, who deserved glory, worship, and praise, operated in a gentle, gentleness and lowliness of heart. That means he served. That means he came to minister to us. He came to heal the brokenhearted. He healed many people and ultimately offered spiritual healing through the cross and paying for our sins so that we could be made right with God. James 3.17, we looked at this last week, said, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality, without hypocrisy. In Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. You see, Jesus lived a not-about-me life of service, even though life is about Christ. It is found in him. But he took that humble approach, and we are to follow it. We're to display. God wants to produce in us this gentleness, this meekness and gentleness of Christ in our lives. And that doesn't mean weakness, does it? Meekness and gentleness is the strength to lay aside pride and self-assertion and be used to lift others up, to minister to others, and to accomplish the will of God together. And that takes strength, especially when those that are difficult and challenging, isn't it? It takes strength when my ego has been stamped on and my plans have been thwarted. When instead, the meekness and gentleness of Christ seeks the best for others and in others. It seeks to lift others up rather than tear them down. Gentleness of spirit deals with people with, instead of criticism and harshness, deals with them in compassion and understanding and forbearance. And then ultimately points and, po- and nudges people towards Christ who can heal the broken in all of us. Gentleness, love of Christ in a de- meek and quiet spirit. And it says, let it be known. 
It should be obvious, is what he's saying, in the life of the Christian. If we are to reflect Christ, if Christ lives in me and therefore through me, this is what should be on, on display, isn't it? That's what he's developing in our lives. Let it be known. Let it be obvious. A love of Christ expressed in this way, that in which I have an attitude that is not here to promote myself, but to lift up others. But the third thing we come to then in verses 6 and 7 of these wonderful verses about the peace that passes understanding, that passes all understanding. What we have in these verses, verses 6 and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, who wouldn't trade peace for anxiety? I think all of us would be, would be the first in line at that counter. We could find rest in place of stress, a calm in the place of worry. And these verses tell us how to get there, how to make that trade, how to enjoy peace rather than, than all the worry and fears of life. And the first thing we see here, once again, is it involves a choice where he says, be anxious for nothing. Again, that's an imperative. That's, that's an encouragement. That's a choice. And how we're going to view whatever's causing our anxiety, our stress, and our fears. He says, in other words, you don't have to be there. You don't have to live under those things. It doesn't mean the problems are always, always going to go away, but that we can trust God in the midst of those problems. And so it indicates a choice, a choice to entrust oneself to the Lord in prayer, to commit one's worries and fears to Him. And faith and trust is always a choice. It's the alternative that we, uh, that we, have, that we make, the choice that we make in the face of struggles and fears. Are we going to face them in our own strength, in our own wits and wisdom, and find our own finding our own resolution, or are we going to trust God? And what we find is that trusting in self doesn't work very well, does it? Doesn't give us peace, the kind of peace that's talked about here. Another thing we notice here: not only be anxious for nothing; it's a choice of how we view those that that which causes causes worry. But it's in everything by prayer and supplication. It's nothing and in everything. Anxious for nothing. And this was absolutes again. Anxious for nothing, but in everything. Nothing, everything. Absolutes. Nothing, everything. Isn't it? How in the world can we do that in every aspect of life and to have peace instead of anxiety? Well, we need to recognize First of all, since this is a peace that comes from God, that first of all, there's nothing that our God can't handle. We forget that sometimes. Sometimes we think, God, you forgot, or God, you forgot me. We forget that God tells us, my grace is sufficient for thee. You see, part of the problem is we always want escape out of our trials instead of sustenance in our trials. And we forget that our God can handle it and can handle us. My grace is sufficient. God will provide all that we need for whatever faces us. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly above, abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. There's nothing our God can't handle. Secondly, there's nothing beyond the reach of his sovereign protection. He knows what we can handle. That wonderful verse in 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation or testing has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. That means to you and to me. He is faithful who will not allow you 
to be tempted or tested beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now notice the way of escape is not out. He says that you may be able to bear it. The way of escape is the lifeline that we, that we grab onto, and that lifeline is his hand. That's the way of escape. It's a, it's a reorientation to be anxious for nothing, but instead to commit our lives to him, to trust him. The third thing, this being anxious for nothing and everything and always involves, it really comes down to if it's a nothing and an everything situation, is it's a complete committing of our lives to him. It's a trusting him with our lives. And that's a lesson we all have to learn because sometimes we think we can r know how to run our lives better than God can. Sometimes we think it's a risk to commit ourselves wholly to him, but we couldn't be in better hands so that in every circumstance we simply trust the Lord. And we have to remember that in reality God has promised us his care. He's promised us, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, in spite of all the evil around us. And he knows that we are assaulted with the efforts of this enemy, the thief who, according to John 10, seeks to kill, steal, and destroy in our life. He knows those things. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's the answer. To be able to everything always to cease depending on ourselves. Our scripture reading in Hebrews chapter 4 started out with these verses. Therefore, there remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered into his rest or his peace has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Now, he's using the Sabbath as an illustration. He says, but if you want to enter the rest of God, we cease from our own works. Our own works is our self-dependency. Solving our problems on ourselves, facing our problems on our own. Instead, nothing and everything means we turn it all over to him. So we, here we, in order to enjoy this peace that surpasses understanding, we must make a choice to be anxious for nothing. We must make that choice in, in nothing and in everything. And then we pray. How do we do that? We pray. See, the natural reaction to a problem when it presents itself, when, it, when you first are confronted with, with that bad news, think Job, when his servants came and told him of all the disasters that had happened on Job, our first reaction is to hyperventilate, to get anxious, to worry, and, and maybe panic, cry, whatever the case may be. Or for some of us who are solution-driven, we look for a way of escape on our own. How can I handle this, resolve this, and fix it? That's the natural reaction, the spiritual reaction. The reaction God wants to teach us to have is simply say, Lord, Father, my God, help me. I have no idea what you're doing, why you're doing it, and I don't really maybe like it, but I know you've got this. That's prayer. Simple. Doesn't mean you have to have some long prayer prayer. You just say, Lord, help me. Lord, give me the strength. Give me the perspective. Prayer should be our first line of defense, our immediate pursuit in, in dealing with our issues, and faith's first reach for help. Our scripture reading at the end of our scripture reading today, Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. 
that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, the reason it says come boldly is because the book of Hebrews are written to Jews who never approached the presence of God in the Old Testament, except for once a year on the Day of Atonement. They went behind that veil, that curtain, because sins had not been fully dealt with yet. Remember, when Jesus died on the cross, one thing that occurred is that veil was rent from top to bottom, meaning access to God was now available. Sins had been paid for once and for all and forever. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever, so now we can come to the throne of grace, not on our own merits, not on our own strength, but on the coattails of Jesus Christ. We can come boldly in him, can't we? Wonderful. And you do that so that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Faith's first reach for help is the throne of grace. And we might find help at time of need because God knows our needs, but he supplies the grace to deal with it. And so we're to pray. Pray with and supplication. Supplication simply means request. It's a plea for help in the time of need. Because our Father is anxious to help. You know, parents, we can maybe, as parents, maybe we can understand that a little bit. When our kids are getting themselves into a fix and you want to help, but there's a time in life where you just have to let them run its course a little bit. You know, and when kids get to the teen years, they don't need your help, and they don't welcome your advice. As a parent, it doesn't mean you're not anxious to tell them, to help them. You know, and, but you know what? If you tried, you'd just be wasting your words because you're not really interested at times, at least. I know one of my children told me that, you know, Dad, he says, that you got a lot smarter when, you, when, when, when I turned 20, when they turned 25. Because a parent is anxious to give the advice and help when children are need. Well, how much more our loving Heavenly Father wants to help, wants to give advice, wants to direct our steps, and so come to him. That's what it says. Bring our request. Find our refuge in the storms of life in the care of our loving Heavenly Father. I think this passage describes one who, who finds refuge in the arms of our Father, either one who has already been beaten up by the storms of life, who finally collapses into his arms, turns it over to him in prayer and request. Or one who is prepared and finds rest and a freedom from the oppression of worry and fear. Either way, we come to him. Well, we come to him with thanksgiving. That's interesting here, isn't it? I like when that's that, that word's thrown in there. With thanksgiving. Now, we're not, 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 he's not saying being thankful for the bad stuff itself, but for God who allowed it into my life because every good gift and perfect gift is from above. The Old Testament, Psalms 45, Isaiah 45, 7, I think it is, tells us that God creates the good and the calamity in our lives. He does so for a purpose. It's to teach us his faithfulness and his word and, and, the, and help us learn to trust him. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 8. I want to flip over there for a moment. This familiar story, which I think is applicable here. Because when we're thankful, we're thankful for God who was present with us in the storms of life. Present with us when the waves of the storm assault us. And that's what we find here in this uh, somewhat humorous but 
telling story in Mark chapter 8, verse 23. And I am in the wrong chapter. Okay, well, if you find it, I'm looking for the, the storm on the sea. I wrote down the wrong reference. Well, I'll tell it. You can read it and find it in your own time. Look, what? Thank you. That is way off, isn't it? That's not the one I'm looking for. Not the one where he walks on water. Well, It's the time when Jesus is in the boat and he's sleeping when the storm comes. Remember that story? And the waves, you know, get stormy and the disciples get afraid, become afraid. Now, you've got to remember that at least four of those disciples are fishermen. And they knew the Sea of Galilee. They knew how rough it can get. Mark 4, thank you. I knew someone would eventually get there. They probably weren't listening until they got there. Well, was I off. Verse 35 of Mark 4. There we go. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. And then when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was and other little boats also were also with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, that's kind of praying, by the way. He just wasn't in heaven, he was with them. They decided to pray. But, but they prayed in a panic. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Then he arose, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and sea obey him? How many times in a storm do we say that? Lord, don't you care? Don't you see what's going on? Don't you see what, what I'm going through? Thankfulness in those storms comes from, a, from the confidence of faith. Confidence in loving and faithful care of our compassionate God. You see, Jesus knew the storm was going to come. In fact, he was sovereign over these, the storms of life, the storms they went through. And he was teaching these disciples a lesson that Jesus was resting in the storm. He wasn't afraid. He was asleep. And they're in a panic, fishermen, in a panic in the sea. And though they, they, they came to him in prayer, they forgot who he was until the end of the lesson when he when they realized who, how great their God was. He controls. He's in charge. I need not have feared in my life. So going back to Philippians chapter 4, after all of that, he says, he says to offer our prayers with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving because of who our God is. And that he expresses his divine attributes towards us and our benefit. He is for us. 
And even though the storms come, and they do come because we live in a, a life that is corrupted because of sin, our God is faithful. And we're to let our requests be made known. That's what it says. Let your request be made known to God. Now, it's not because he doesn't know. Obviously, is it? Let them be known is for our sake, not for his. It's, for, it's to help us orient to our creator, our God, our almighty God who loves us. It's, finding, it's for us to look to him to find help and find rest in his arms. So in prayer, we bring our request to him to find grace to help in time of need. Because nothing is too is too big or too small for him. This is an always everything. And we can be thankful that he is in charge. And we can find rest there. You know, you just watch sometimes little children, toddlers walking around, and when something in their experience is they're going through a store or down the sidewalk or wherever they might be, maybe you're at a fair, you know, and something threatens them. What is the one thing they want? They want your help. And when they find it, they relax. They're protected. Now, I don't know how every kid thinks their dad is a Rambo and can conquer the world, but that's how they view you, don't they? But we have an almighty God. And we're to bring our request to him. And in verse 7, we have the result. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Will guard your hearts and minds. It surpasses understanding because it is beyond the realm of human comprehension, isn't it? Where in this world do you find this kind of peace and joy displayed in the worst of the storms of life? People try to find it. Some seek it through money, power, success. Others still seek it through some type of spiritualism or yoga or Eastern meditative practices. Others look for it in moving out to the back 40 and isolating and insulating themselves from everybody. But that, that, that kind of peace is not found there. Notice it's his peace. It is, as stated here, the peace of God. Not peace that comes from some other practice or some event or some circumstance. It's the peace of God that surpasses understanding because it's beyond human understanding. We can't even perceive of it naturally without his help we can definitely cannot produce it because jesus said it's his peace and that back to that same portion in john 13 14 and 15 where jesus says he wanted us to have fullness of his joy he says this in john 14 peace i live with you my peace i give unto you and he is the prince of peace isn't he not as the world gives give i to you so all those things i listed and add to that list however you might like not, he says, that's not that kind of peace I'm talking about. It's not simply calm. And that's one of my pet peeves when I walk in the, walk in the store is that people are going to find calm by taking a, some kind of illegal drug. Calm. Everything's calm. People want calm. Jesus says, that's not that kind of peace I'm offering. It's my peace, he says. It's his peace. And I give it to you. He says, therefore, don't let your heart be troubled. Being anxious for nothing. Same thing. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it be afraid. It's all rooted in his person and his presence and promise and, and commitment to us. That's what that verse is saying. My peace I'm leaving with you. I'm committing myself to you. 
my care for you. It's my peace I want you to enjoy that can rule in our hearts. It passes understanding because it is divinely produced. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. There we kind of have thankfulness and peace in the same verse again. Let it rule. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, these are some of my favorite verses, says this, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. Perfect peace, when our minds and attentions are fixed on him. So that peace uh, passes, surpasses understanding is found in our relationship with God, a relationship of trust as we entrust ourselves to God. And it tells us here that that peace will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Once again, it's in Christ Jesus. It will guard our hearts and minds. Guarding here has the idea of keeping and protecting, doesn't it? Which really has a note of prevention rather than recovery. Now, we can still recover from anxiety, stress, worry, and fear when we bring our requests to him in prayer and commit our, cir cir our, cir our circumstances to him, focus on his power and ability and love and faithfulness to us. But I think what's in view here is a preventative medicine approach. Rather than recovery, it's preventative. And that's better, isn't it? Not allowing the anxieties to grip us in the first place. This only occurs as we, as we practice these things daily. This is the always and nothing and always mentality that we learn to walk with our Lord every day so that it's natural for us when things, when a stick gets stuck in the spokes of our lives that we just say, Lord, I trust you. I don't know what's going on, but you do. And we can find rest there when we're, when we, when we're practiced in that walk of faith, in that trusting him in every moment of life, when we're rejoicing in the Lord. We're ready for whatever comes our way. That's what God is seeking to do in our lives, to teach us his faithfulness and his power and his love so that we might find rest in him. You know, as Isaiah 26, 4 mentions, there's really strength in the stability of these resources, isn't it? these attitudes, these dynamics that God wants to divinely produce in our lives. Things that can be enjoyed in spite of everything or anything that may be joy killers or peace preventers in our lives. And this is a life that rises above the norm, the natural. But it is the result of one who simply knows and walks God in life, walks with God in life. And the answer is simple, whether it's joy or whether it's peace. The simple answer is just trust the Lord. Truly the simplicity of it, isn't it? Trust the Lord. Now there's more behind that. We have to get to know our God, know his, know his character, know his promises, know his faithfulness. But as, that, as we learn those things and God proves himself to us, it's simply trust him. Cease from your own works, as our scripture even says, from our own dependencies, and trust him. And when you do, you'll find him abundantly able and always faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these these divine dynamics that you want to produce in our lives. Father, really, it's a reflection of the person of Christ lived out in our lives as we learn to trust you in every moment. Father, we can rejoice in you always. We can be anxious for nothing always. 
we can always entrust ourselves to you in prayer and dependence that we might enjoy the peace that you intended for us. God, thank you for these wonderful privileges. We thank you, first of all, and rejoice in our salvation that you provided through Jesus Christ. Thank you that salvation is free. It's because Jesus paid the complete and full payment for sin on the cross and rose victorious. You promise that to us, Father, freely. But for those who know Christ, your children, you have an abundant life awaiting us, Father, and the abundant life described here involves these attributes of love, joy, and peace. Father, may, may we allow your spirit to produce it in us. May we, may we learn to be those that would walk in dependent faith, viewing our circumstances through a relationship with you rather than through the anxieties of, of self. So, Father, make these things helpful to us today now, we pray. In Jesus' name.